Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Welcome back, everybody. Oh, it's very, very exciting to have you here again. It's another episode of, of Industry Standard with, with Barry Katz. It's me. Um, once again, I just can't thank you all enough for for everything. I'm looking at Ben Glebe right now, and I know him since he was a very young man. I met him when he was 18 in college, and obviously one of the one of the true legends and. I'd say Ben Glebe fits right into that mold. If there was a way to fit into that mold and to surpass the mold, it's like a pop over that you've cooked and you've let it cook too long and all of a sudden it's overflowing beyond the, beyond the dish itself. And it's like, is it even, a, is, is it even still a pop over? Has it become a cake with a weird growth in the bottom of it because it's so exceeded your expectations that you don't know anymore what you're eating, but all you know is that it's delicious. And that you want more, as America wants more of Ben Glebe every time they see him on the television. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is very exciting. Could somebody wake Ben up? Okay, we're here, <laughs> and I'm going to introduce him, and this is going to be a long introduction. I'm so sorry. By the time we get to Ben, we'll have six minutes left <laughs> for the show, and it'll be a great show. Trust me. Okay, Ben Glebe is a talented stand-up comedian, actor, writer, producer, and director whose online videos have received more than 20 million views. Esquire called him one of six comedians who could be comedy's next big thing. The other five were Aziz Ansari, Patton Oswalt, David Cross, Dimitri Martin, and Flight of the Concords. It came true for each one of them, and now it seems to be Glebe's time with GSN's Emmy-nominated comedy brain teaser game show, Idiot Test in which he hosts, executive produces, and even writes some of the brain teasers. For seven years, he was a roundtable regular on Chelsea Lately on E! with over 100 appearances. And he also played himself on a memorable episode of the E! scripted series, After Lately, which I loved. 
He's been headlining comedy clubs around the globe since 2007 and has played sold-out arenas all over North America, opening for both Chelsea Handler and Dane Cook. And on TV on The Late Late Show, Last Comic Standing, Stand Up and Deliver, and twice on Last Call with Carson Daly. Glebe has been an on-air contributor for CNN and won a Golden Mike Award for his work on Southern California's NPR's Pat Morrison Comedy Congress. An accomplished voiceover actor, Glebe is the voice of Marshall the Sloth in Ice Age Continental Drift, which is the number two biggest worldwide animated motion picture of all time. He's also done voices Dolly in The Book of Life, starring Channing Tatum, and is one of the stars of Kevin Smith's Jay and Silent Bob's super groovy cartoon movie, currently on Netflix. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome from the beautiful home of probably the next president of the United States, my friend, my client, your choice, Ben Glebe. Love it. I love it. It's very likely that I will win, and so you will be the manager of the president. <laughs> and how does that feel, Barry? It feels good. I've never known a manager of a president before. Yeah, it doesn't typically happen. It happened in the Robin Williams movie, Man of the Year, where he was a comedian who runs for president. And um, who's his manager in that? Christopher Watkins' his manager? Or I believe I think so. Christopher Watkins' manager and he ends up managing the president of the United States. It's so beautiful, this house, and I'm looking past you at this beautiful pool, gorgeous, gorgeous foliage and shrubbery and cacti and a liquor wagon. So clearly we know where this campaign could be going. Uh, I don't know even what you mean by that, um, but I will say this. This is my grandparents' uh, liquor, or uh, wet bar, rolling wet bar. And you know I don't have a drinking problem because that's the exact same level all those bottles have been at for years. I know. They don't look very empty. I know. And also, I noticed a great trick. Because as you know, I sometimes have a, a birthday party at my house. And you just put a little reserved placard on the bar. And you can have 300 people in your house and no one will touch it. It's pretty amazing if you invite the right people. Interesting. So I had the other bars people got to enjoy, but they did not touch this one. I've been to many birthday parties here, and it's really special here. It's just a really great vibe, kind of like you always have a great vibe. And I've been dying to ask you this because I've never done this before. So I figure I should ask you the question that hopefully everybody would like to know is, what was your first inspiration to making the decision to run for president. I want you to take our audience through the day before when you had no thought of running for president to the moment that happened that you did. I don't even at this point remember exactly when there was no thought just because, I mean, obviously you grow up, people say anybody can become president in this country and you don't really believe that. Until this past few years. Right, exactly. So I think part of what happened is you start seeing the slew of recent presidents that we have had, maybe with the exception of Barack Obama, who I think was a pretty impressive person all the way around, but with Bill Clinton being a very flawed person and and listening to his uh, book on tape after his presidency when he's saying, like, after the Monica Lewinsky scandal, I ended up having to sleep on the couch outside of our bedroom in the White House for three months until Hillary let me back in there. I'm like, this is a regular 
person and flawed. And he also is unfaithfully the worse person than I am, at least in his personal life, even though he was, I think, a very great president. And then George W. Bush, who was like a very flawed person and couldn't even speak well in public. And then you maybe skip Obama and then you've got Trump, who I think everybody can acknowledge, even if you're a supporter of his, is a ridiculous human being and just the most flawed, mean can't put two sentences together, narcissistic, compulsive liar, egomaniac with like the personality of a five-year-old and they all become president of the United States. Now, how do you really feel? <laughs> and you realize that it actually is accessible. And as you know, I've been very involved in politics and very passionate about politics for about 15 years now. And I started realizing as I follow the news and read constantly and watch the news constantly that our leaders don't know more than I do. And it was a crazy moment of realization that you actually don't need to be a Rhodes Scholar or the world's most, uh, the world's most prepared person from a policy perspective. You have to know what your convictions are. You have to know the direction you'd want to take the country. You have to know what the problems are. And you have to, I think what's been missing so much from our politics is you have to know how to relate to everyday Americans, how to relate to real people. And I started realizing that these politicians just keep spewing the same nonsense over and over again. It's rhetoric. They don't ever dive deep in their knowledge. I think I have deeper knowledge than the vast majority of our politicians who are just more concerned about their reelection and saying the same party line and towing what the, what the party tells them they can. And that our politics need somebody from the outside and that our politics need somebody who knows what it's like to struggle out there. And I also realized we're supposed to be in this post-truth era now and this era of fake news well, that's why people have been turning now for years to comedians for the news, for the truth. And I started realizing, well, if people have shifted from the legit news anchors to the John Stewart's and Samantha Bees and John Oliver's and Bill Maher's to get their news, then why would people not be shifting to a comedian also to run their policies and to lead the country? Because comedians are truth tellers. Comedians are the philosophers and truth tellers of our society. And I realized it's ridiculous that no one even considers that. And then three weeks ago, solidified as a precedent in the world when Zelensky in the Ukraine won by a landslide the presidency. And he's a comedian with no political experience. And I have a lot of political experience. And it's just, I don't see any reason why I'm not as qualified, if not more than anybody else running. And so I figured I'm diving in. As an unbiased person, let's say hovering over the world, and you look down and you say to yourself, okay, if I could just figure out everything and every initiative that I think will help our country and the world, and you could do it and make everything happen and put everybody on those tasks, how many years do you think would it take to make things right in this country? I think systemic change can happen a lot faster than it's happened with any of our recent administrations because there are career politicians in there who need to get reelected. And they already, even from two, three years in Washington, have so many ties that they can't upset and are afraid to ruffle the wrong feathers. 
that they don't create systemic change. Even Obama, who I think was our best president in a very long time, did not create some of the systemic change that he claimed he would be able to do or hoped he'd be able to do, pun intended. And I think it can happen through somebody much easier who has no ties to Washington. That's the illusion of Trump, was that he would do that because he's not a Washington insider and he would drain the swamp, but he is. He'd been a politically connected person forever and he had is a billionaire supposedly who was a tycoon for so long and is in bed with all of the moneyed interests and and power elite in this country so he's not a real person that's just a complete fraud that he puts out there somebody truly from the outside a real person i think could make change so much faster because i just would not stop until i achieved the systemic change. I would put myself on the line. I pull all-nighters all the time just on the campaign two weeks in, three weeks in. If I was the leader of the free world and had the opportunity to create real change for millions of Americans, I just wouldn't sleep. I would go camp out at Congress and say, we're not leaving here until we get a deal. We're going to negotiate until morning. We're, we're going to have only pee breaks and you're right back here. Enough of this partisan bullshit. Let's stay here until we get a deal. And I think by reappropriating funds you can make big change fast no president's gone in there and significantly changed our military budget and it's so it's an 800 billion dollar a year budget roughly and we are already five times bigger than any other nation in the world five we're, we're five times bigger than the, the next five nations biggest nations combined our military is bigger and so no one goes in and makes that bold slash because it doesn't look good politically. I don't care it looks politically. And I would never cut our troops. I would never reduce our troop levels or our readiness level. But it's all about these paradigm shifts that comedians are good at looking outside the box. And I realized how I would frame that and sell that is we would actually be a tougher military, a scarier military with less funding. Because we already have all the weapons and bombs and thousands of nuclear weapons. Who's scarier? Somebody who has so much funding and so many layers of protection that we can, you can mess with us and we can go through a bunch of buffers before we get to our bad weapons, to our real badass weapons, or one that's leaner and has fewer options. Somebody with fewer options is scarier and more unpredictable. So I would make the argument that we would be a stronger military with less funding. And then you take three or four hundred million, I'm sorry, three or four hundred million dollars a year and you fund all of these other needs fund the VA fully so we finally take care of our veterans our promise to our troops that we never succeed as a country in doing we fully fund so many programs we reinvest in our education we modernize our schools we have a massive infrastructure project that creates jobs in the country but we actually do it in a bold way we finally use our hearts to care about people in the country by having compassionate laws by granting citizenship to children that were brought here when they were kids against their will. When kids are brought here, kids don't want to call the shots in families. They're basically kidnapped and brought by their families and brought to America. And then they're, if they're law-abiding citizens, they don't get citizenship. That's an easy thing. But you just have to speak to people's humanity and relate to them. And comedians are good at doing that. But as a comic, the one thing that's similar to what you're talking about is going into Congress or camping out is the fact that you go in and you go on stage and there's 200, 300, 1,000 people. And sometimes in comedy venues, when you're not the headliner, they're not there to see you. 
And so you have to go on and you have to win over a group of people that don't know you, mm-hmm. might not even want to be there to see you. Or even when you are the headliner, they just came out for Saturday night and they don't know who they're seeing. When you're on a lineup of a bunch of people, sometimes there's shows like that benefits. Sure. The fact is, is you have to go on and you have a short period of time to win them over. Mm-hmm. But there are coming to see comedy. When you get into office and you are not a career politician, you're facing a group of people that they are politicians. Tell our audience how you're going to go into an audience of a group of people who don't want you, who don't want to hear that you don't like their career politician attitudes who you're saying, hey, I want to change things. And it's not one person. It's hundreds of people against one person. It's one thing to get in. But once you get in, it doesn't mean you can make change because the people might not want you to do that. Sure. And no doubt there will be resistance in no matter no matter who's in office. And I'm not saying I'm going to go in there and create systemic change in every single thing in my first two years. But I think a comedian with my skill set has the best shot. Because look at even what Trump is able to do with some of the skills of a comedian. He really is. The guy is a comedian more than he is a president. And he is so good at the psychology of talking to people and manipulating people with his words and getting people to bend to his will. Everyone, all the people in his own party even, were vehemently against him, called him a risk to our nation, called him unhinged, and now they don't block one thing he does or even try to, and they just do whatever he says because he's able to use his skills to shame people, (laughs) to make fun of them, to heckle them in a way that they feel like they're going to be too embarrassed to not, and that's the kind of skills that I can use, not by shaming people, but when necessary, yes, because when you're fighting for the good side, that I believe is the good side, is the moral side, is the side of change that we need, you have to use harder tactics. I disagree with somebody I respect greatly with, with Michelle Obama's when they go low, you go high. I say when they go low, it's a great chance to kind of step on them because they're down there already and make sure you win because you're fighting for the future. And so I would use every tactic possible, the media, my Twitter feed, my ability to engage with them directly in a charming, funny way that humor is so disarming. And then when it, if it, in instances where it doesn't work, I then go to the public and I call it truly like it is. I don't need a relationship after four or eight years with these people. And I can say, Mitch McConnell just said this in a private meeting. We're not interested in helping you. We don't care about poor people. We don't care. Our priority is to make sure we increase profits for huge corporations. That's our alignment. That's what he just said. The man that you elected in your your district, in your state to represent you. That's what he said. Tweet at him, bro. And keep it real and keep it relatable to real people. Always, you have to make sure you never lose a connection with real people. And every politician, I feel like, does. So let's analyze that for a second. Please. This is a fascinating thing that happened in the last campaign. And I wanted to know how you would have combated it. Because you talked about when they go low, we go high. And you have an opportunity to do something when they go low. I felt when Trump placed the moniker Crooked Hillary on Hillary Clinton... It just was so devastating. It felt to me that there was no defense for her at that point. Let's pretend you were running and Trump put the moniker on you, Crooked Comedy Ben. Uh 
How would you have compounded that where Hillary didn't? Easy. I would say it's amazing how a man who is the most crooked and corrupt politician and human we've seen in our public lives in recent years, who lies at every turn, who tells you to your face, I'm going to surround myself with just the best people. And 19 of those best people are in jail right now or indicted. His word means nothing when he labels you. In fact, all he ever does when he speaks is three things. He brags, he lies, or he whines. He is crybaby Trump. And you don't listen to crybabies. You put them in time out. You don't listen to crybabies and take their word as fact. You say, you're in the corner until you calm down, you big baby. He's a crybaby, and I'm torn between the nickname crybaby Trump or treasonous Trump. And both are very accurate labels. I just think crybaby, while treasonous is the better insult, crybaby, I think, would hit his ego more because he doesn't care about his country. And so he's so disloyal, I don't think he even cares if people say he's treasonous. But if they think he's a crybaby, that's going to hit his ego. Because this soft shell of a man, things that Hillary would have never said, this soft shell of a man wants people to think he's the most confident, successful, brave guy, but it's so clear he is a sad facade that cries himself to sleep every night eating Big Macs in his bed and and shit-tweeting on the toilet, hated everybody. He's a joke, and I would call him a joke to his face, and I would call him a joke in front of the public, and I would diffuse so much of his power because his power is people who, do, who are traditional politicians and don't know how to respond to his street fight mentality. That's what comics do. Like you said, we travel the country and deal with every situation. I've had death threats from Trump supporters. I respond right in their face. I never back down. People heckle me and shout MAGA. I take them down and Trump down with just my wit, just with my words, with my ability to disprove points. And you want a relatable politician for once, somebody who's not entrenched in the system, who more understands the struggles than somebody that even though I had a cable TV show for years, second that went away two years ago, I had trouble paying my bills again. I'm not a multimillionaire. Your commission checks went down for a while. <laughs> you had to be patient with me. We were texting. I'm like, Barry, I'm going to get that money back up. Okay. And who knows regular people more than someone who travels his entire life, his entire adult life. Every town, big and small, Republican, Democrat, rooms of thousands or of 30 and relates to them, talks to them, shakes their hands after the show, not just when campaigning, but because that's my, my path I've chosen for my life, and then hangs with them and drinks beers with them and is a regular person with them and has conversations all the time with my Uber drivers and my cab drivers and does podcasts with them as my guests. That's who you want in office. And I would just explain that you can have the appeal of somebody who's a shit talker and is funny and tells it like it is, like people like about Trump, but also one who is not an evil orange monster trying to ruin the planet and unwind all of our institutions and our values. I think that's a pretty strong argument, but I could be wrong, boo. All right. Well, that's a great, great, great entry into <laughs> this interview. Part one with Ben Glebe. We'll be back with part two with Ben, and you'll be able to hear from him again about what he's going to do in 2020. And I'm excited for people to hear this interview, this uh, replay of our old episode, because it's very revealing. I talk about my struggles with my speech problem, talk about some personal stories, and it's more revealing, I think, than most candidates would ever allow in the public sphere. So that's the kind of upfront and transparent campaign I want to run and kind of person that I am. And because I'm trying to be a different kind of candidate and bring a real voice of, an, of somebody from the outside into politics, I do not have the money machine that all these candidates do. 
which is why I need to ask all of your listeners a very small favor that can actually put the power of our democracy in their hands for once is I just need $1. The DNC this year made a, a very accessible entry point. If it is real, and we'll see if it holds true, that you just need 65,000 individual donations, even of $1, to make it on the Democratic debate stage, side by side with all of the major candidates. And we have only four weeks to do it. So if your listeners can please go to glebe2020.com, G-L-E-I-B-2020.com, and just click donate. And give a buck or whatever you can afford, because these things are very expensive, Barry. And I'm sorry, you don't get 10% of these campaign donations. <laughs> um, we will have a chance to get a regular person on that debate stage and a comedian at that to shake things up and hold these politicians to account. And it's just a buck. As Doug Stanhope just put it on his podcast, Chuck Glebe a buck. A dollar for your democracy. Glebe2020.com would be amazing. And... Um, I'm assuming Barry right now would respond if I can channel you by saying, I mean, this is an incredible bargain to be able to have a voice in this country for a dollar. I mean, 10% of a dollar is only a dime, so I wouldn't even commission that one. So uh, please give a buck to Gleave. He's a great guy, and I feel as though our country could really benefit from another voice. You don't have to endorse him to donate. You just have to believe another voice should be in there this early in the race. <laughs> and he's my favorite client I've ever had better than Dave Chappelle. <laughs> Glebe2020.com. Glebe2020.com. Yes, sir. Oh, and one last thing. Sorry to keep keeping you from this uh, full interview. But tonight, Monday, May 20th at the Hollywood Improv is the official campaign kickoff event. And you can just show up for free and see the launch of this, what we hope will become a very big movement just show up at the Hollywood Improv, doors open, and step and repeat for photos at 6 p.m. in the main room. 7 p.m. the event starts, done by 8.30. We have Nikki Glazer, Ben Morrison, Avery Pearson, Ida Rodriguez, amazing comedian, some activists speaking, and then my first public speech as a candidate. You could be there to witness history, uh, and it'll be a lot funnier version of history than we've had recently. Fantastic. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Please welcome my guest today, a very, very funny man, multi-talented, Ben Glebe. Barry. You have a lot more energy in your voice today than I expected. This is a side note unrelated to anything. I get it up for Ben Glebe. Is that right? Yes. Something a girl has never said to her. <laughs> nor, nor should she, because they don't need to get things up. Point being, I'm doing fine. I don't need any pills for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's really sweet. It is. I appreciate that. The first thing I have to ask you is something that you're probably not going to expect that I'm going to ask. I honestly never see you 
out as much. The only time I see you socializing and really mixing and partying is at your own parties at your house. Mm -hmm. But every time I see you, you have this look about you like literally you have been up all night. <laughs> you've been drinking till dawn. You've had some supermodels ankles in two different zip codes for about 17 <laughs> hours and you're rolling in. Yet for some reason, when the red light goes on, you always put it together. We explain to me, is that just the way you are naturally? Or is there some truth to the fact that you are a hard living, loving guy who takes things to the limit in their personal life as well as their professional life? Yeah, I think it's both of those. I think I naturally have some bags under my eyes and look a little tired sometimes. But yeah, right now I'm on about three hours, 45 minutes of sleep, maybe closer to four hours because I snoozed once. Um, but I wasn't partying last night. I just was at my house and was trying to watch a lot of news and absorb a lot of stuff and catch up on some shows I hadn't seen. And then at about three in the at about four thirty in the morning last night, I remembered. Oh, I have two major voiceover auditions I have to record in my booth. So I then went and started studying and working on it, recording and setting up the booth and finished recording at about six forty five in the morning and got to bed. So yeah, both. I mean. I definitely have had harder partying phases in my life, more in my 20s, oh, and a lot of my 30s, but um, now I'm not partying as much. I'm in a more serious frame of mind, I would say. I've lost 20 pounds in the last two and a half months on this diet I'm on. I'm trying to get in uh, game game shape. What's the diet you're on? It's this thing called MyFitFoods, just a calorie restriction diet. Where they bring the food to your house? I have to pick it up. I have to pick it up because it's cheaper that way. But um, it's uh, normally I was probably eating, I was eating like jelly beans a lot of times in my house late at night watching TV. And uh, I was getting a lot of, I was probably eating 2,500, if not 3,000 calories a day. I'm down to 1,200 calories a day for the last two months. And uh, it's really working. I'm not working out at all. I do not have to lift a finger. I sit there and burn fat. It's the ideal workout plan, a non-workout. I recommend it to everybody. But um, yeah, I even when I... I'm having fun and enjoying going out a bit. I can always, for whatever reason, luckily pull it together, like you said, for performance reasons. And and for whatever reason, my whole life, I guess it's probably just like I already have a pretty neurotic and overactive brain. And whenever I have a big thing the next day, which is, of course, the worst time for this to happen, I cannot fall asleep. So often the biggest days of my whole life, like my live Glebe shows in college, like the first episode, the first day of taping Idiot Test, um, any of these things, I often am on zero sleep. Like I couldn't fall asleep for a minute and I'll just go through a whole day and I can usually muster, I have a lot of energy and I can muster a lot of energy to pull through. And then I can even stay up late and go out for drinks after. And then I crash for about, you know, a good six, seven hours. Now, one of the things I find about you is that the things that I have worked on you with, and as a manager, one of the greatest joys of my life is being able to executive produce and be a person on a show that an artist is working on is the greatest thing when they create it and you're working with them all the time and when we worked on the special together mm -hmm. i was blown away by the amount of i hope you don't mind me saying this the amount of drama surrounding <laughs> prior to the show i mean it was probably the most dramatic crazy time <laughs> 
that I've ever experienced in my life. Whereas Ben <laughs> invited a group of people to a show. Naturally, he had a guest list of family and friends. But Ben does everything to the hundredth power. So Ben doesn't just invite his mom, his dad, girlfriends, few friends. Ben has a guest list of literally 297 people when we have a place that holds 600 plus people have bought tickets. Right. Oh, that's true. I guess my personal list is about 300 plus we yeah. sold like 500 yeah. tickets. People want to do well. They want things the way they want them. When you're in a situation where you only have so many seats in the theater and he's like, you got to get all these people in. And it's my job as a manager to, I always say, don't spook the thoroughbred. Yeah, exactly. And so you're the thoroughbred. I got to figure out a way to make everything right while you're getting ready for your show. Presumably, you probably only got less than three hours sleep yep. that night. Yep. And so you can do a great job. That was one of those times that one of the many times that you've really come through and like calming me down and taking control of the situation. The day of, of my special, I've worked towards for 16 years as a stand-up comedian. And you got me the special and saw an opportunity for me to be able to do it and made it happen. And then you also said, as you should have, man, there's not any money here for, uh, for, for, for marketing for an audience. So you have to really like use your network and your abilities to get people out there. I took that very seriously. And so I packed the place and, but I was pulling every favor I could think of to me. We had like two weeks notice. This right after Chelsea lately ended. The run of the show literally ended. I believe it was on August 26th the show ended and idiot test premiered for the first season on august 12th two weeks of the day earlier and two weeks after chelsea ended i had to do the special and i only had about 10 or 11 days notice to put it together usually you get to prepare for a whole year leading to your special and i didn't have that chance and we had to, we had to grab this opportunity as it came because opportunities you know don't wait around for you to prepare for them you have to just hop on board the train so and I would already had plans to go to Burning Man for four, for five days before the special. So I was going to come back and only have a few days to finish packing the place and, and to prepare the special and run it a bunch of times. And so I pulled in like every favor. My brother Ron has had these uh, restaurants that, that, that he runs in Santa Barbara. And I had him put out cards and asked, pull in favors, all these people. And the day of the special, I wake up and I have a million calls of people angry at me because I had to uninvite people and tell people they couldn't come. And my brother's calling me and saying, I've put my business relationships on the line. You're going to screw over my business here. I can't believe this. I had people calling me and saying, I asked my business contact to do you this favor. And I literally was overwhelmed. I'm not a particularly emotional guy. I cried the morning of my special in my house. I was, I was in bed and I was so overwhelmed. And, and the only thing that makes me like get to that level was letting people down. I don't ever want to disappoint people. And the fact that people were trying to help me and I would have to then inconvenience them just threw me for a real loop. And I was like real emotional and f screwed up by it. And it was such an important day. I didn't know how to like be in a great zone. But I always know when I'm doing anything, and again, this is a very specific thing that isn't normal for probably our audience. But when you have a theater, let's say it holds 500 people and let's say you have 700 people. Right. You can always figure out a way to make things happen with a little extra cash in your pocket. Right. A little bit of a good relationship with the people at the theater, treating them right. And something that people don't realize, you have backstage. I called you when this was happening, freaking out. And you literally said to me, this was like at 11 a.m. I was still in L.A. in my apartment, my 
tiny little one bedroom apartment in Hollywood I lived in for too long until Brian Cranston inspired me out of it. And um, when he was a guest on my podcast and put me in my place. Um, and uh, you said, Ben, don't worry about it. Don't even think about it once more the rest of the day. Forward everybody to me, every email, give out my cell phone number. I'll take care of it. And um, I literally just trusted you 100% on that and relaxed. I had the greatest day. My friend Lauren Marie came in to come with me. And we just drove and had a lovely road trip and got in the greatest mindset ever and had one of the best sets of my entire life that night. That's an incredible special. You got to check it out. It's Neurotic amazing. Gangster. Showtime running on demand. Get it right now. Hey, everybody. And I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount. A $100 discount and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like, but the air inside my house, it feels heavy at times before I got this product. And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600 and you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. Something I want to ask you about also that's very, very unique to you is that you get to be around a lot of people who I consider to be really driven artists. Talk about Chelsea, you talk about Dane Cook. These people are as driven as it comes. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you as an artist are attracted to those kind of people as opposed to the people who might be brilliant let's say, like Chappelle, but Chappelle lives his life on the pace he wants to live it and still creates genius moments, but isn't like the kind of guy who is waking up at 5.30 in the morning, okay, how do I start writing, doing this, okay, until like 2 in the morning. That's right. not his style. Are you more attracted to the kind of artists out there that are insanely driven, hard workers who seem to get three hours sleep? I am. I mean, I think those are the only kind of people that I really understand their perspective. That's the way that I am and the way I see the world. And both of those examples, Dane and Chelsea, both are also people that really enjoy their lives, too. 
And I think that I've always been that kind of person. I just burn the candle at both ends as do both of them. And uh, I don't understand when people don't work hard when they're working on something. I can be as lazy as anybody when I don't have a project going. I love to sleep in and do nothing and chill and, you know, hang out with friends and have some drinks or smoke some weed and relax. But when I have a project I'm working on, I give it a thousand percent. I just give it everything I possibly can. And I think one of the biggest things probably that society lacks is that ability to like deliver in the clutch and to really give your all when you have that ability to do it, when you have that that window to come through. And I think so many people are already making excuses from second one and the second that, that they start working on it, they're already only giving, you know, 70%. They're already complaining about the opportunity. And so and then they are upset when it doesn't get received well or why people don't like it or why it isn't their best work. And like probably the biggest thing that's frustrated me in my whole career if I've ever clashed with people and I have, it's when I'm working with people whose egos are bigger than their talent, whose egos are bigger than their work ethic. I think it's so insane. So often I find like if I've ever clashed with people, it's happened when I'm working on a show or something with, with somebody who gets offended by how intense I am, who gets annoyed by how much I want this thing to be as good as possible. And so I'm expecting everybody to be at the top of their game and give, give a thousand percent and to work longer hours. And I'm always the last one to leave the office and I don't want it to be that way. It shouldn't have to be that way. You only live one life and no matter what role you're playing, every role is equally valid as long as you're delivering and bringing the most to that role. So even if you're, you know, uh, somebody who's producing a small segment on a show or you're somebody who is working in an office anywhere, to, I think to be proud of your life, you have to know that each day you left it all on the table and you know that you did the best that you could and made it the best product. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. You're just like literally using your own life as filler, which is insane. It's your one chance. So I don't like that when and oftentimes I find that people then will, will react strangely and will um, use it as an excuse to continue that status quo, that mediocrity that, that they're doing by acting like, oh, Ben's being a diva by being so neurotic or, or Ben saying, you know, we, get, we need to do this or should we do this? And he's like asking so many questions and why can't he just like be more relaxed? And it's like, because we're trying to create like art. We're trying to create like entertainment for millions of people. It's serious. It's going to either be horrible and a waste of people's time in their lives, their precious time, or it's going to be brilliant, and amazing, and they're going to want to see more and they're going to be so glad they gave their time to us. So I find a lot of times that People will try to, you know, keep distance between between themselves and letting and someone who's trying to like push them. And so I don't like that kind of person. So, I mean, everybody, I like everybody, but I don't want to work with or be around that kind of person as much as possible. So people like Dane Cook and Chelsea Handler are hard workers. They really know what they want. They're very, very driven. They they take their lives and careers very seriously. And then when the work day is done, they know they can relax and let loose and party and have a good time. And they certainly both do a lot of that. And I've had amazing fun times with both of them. I mean, not anybody who works harder than Chelsea Handler, not anybody that parties harder than Chelsea Handler. I mean, she did ayahuasca in her documentary on Netflix, one of the most insane hallucinogenic drugs on earth. And it didn't affect her. She had to go back again to like smoke. So she has got quite a quite a talent on both ends of the spectrum. And meanwhile, Dane Cook has never done a drug or taken a drink in his life. Right. Yet he and I have been to so many parties together. And I, it's incredible that 
we're in environments like he and I had a, had a phase many years ago when we were close and uh, he, he and I would go out to nightclubs in LA. He really enjoyed that, that scene. And I was, he and I were just becoming friends and I was tagging along with him a lot. And I don't like nightclubs particularly. I think they're way too loud and way too expensive and way too noisy and way too many people there. And, uh, but if you're going to do it, you may as well do it with Dane Cook where you don't have to wait in any line. You walk right there and you get escorted to the VIP booth and you have free alcohol at night. That's the way to do it. And we're sitting there and we're chilling with all these crazy people and partying with Paris Hilton and all these insane people. And, and, uh, Dane's just observing it sober. And I found it fascinating. I don't know how you don't want to have different vibes. I like to have different vibes. I like to mix it up. (laughs) Tell me three people in your life that work harder than you. In my life that I know that I work with, Chelsea Handler for sure. So she's a harder worker than you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Her work ethic makes me feel very lazy. Um, Who else works really hard? Um, I mean, Dane, you know, works very hard as well. A uh, third person that works harder than me. Um, Craig Brooks, our showrunner on Idiot Test, is a very, very hard worker. A uh, really smart, creative, awesome guy. And he's one of, that, one of those people, too, that doesn't want to stop until the product's perfect. And I love that so much. Awesome. Tell me a moment in your life being around another comedian who was more famous than you, where you were with them and you left that night and got in your car or went back to your hotel and you said to yourself, this person's not going to be around much longer. And they weren't. I've known comedians who passed away, but not, not from, not that I knew it was from any sort of substance or anything. The only example I can really think of was I was, um, performing i was supposed to just host and open up the indecision i think it was 2000 tour indecision no maybe indecision 2004 tour in florida university of florida or something and the middle act was going to be james adomian as george w bush and the headliner was greg draldo and i never met greg although we'd been on a pilot together and i always admired him thought he was hilarious and then um i got a call an hour before the show from my agent saying greg is sick and can't do it you're gonna headline the show and so suddenly a domain was opening for me and i'm headlining the show and i never even met greg that day and obviously you know he passed away you know tragically so i mean that's the only example i can think of i don't i don't even know how he passed away i don't i, I again i didn't know him i don't know any of, the, any of the details as to why that happened but i remember thinking at the time like i bought about the story that oh he's just he has like a, a stomach flu Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it. 
because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. This business has a way of taking years off your life. That's true. Yeah, I try to avoid that too. I mean, I definitely know how to enjoy myself. I remember when I interviewed Chris Thompson, I said, are you surprised you're still alive? And he said, yeah, I had a bet on myself that I was going to go at 33. <laughs> and he died a couple of months later. But oh, wow. Do you look at yourself and the artists that you see out there that live a happy, productive life in the business, but they also enjoy themselves outside of the business? Do you look at them and yourself as somebody, hey, I'm going to be like Don Rickles. I'm going to be 90. I'm going to be performing in Montreal. Or do you look at yourself as a guy who's like, I might not have the longest life. Oh, I look, I'm 100% Don Rickles. I mean, I fully know that I will be 80 years old performing, hopefully at that point, to huge theaters that I can just do one gig and come back home to my family. But I will be performing always for sure. And there are guys that don't have that drive and it won't happen. I mean, Chris Porter one time told me a great... Chris Porter is a comedian who was on Last Comic Standing, very funny guy. Great guy, great Netflix special called Angry and Ugly, I believe, or something like that. And um, really, really awesome guy. That should be my special. <laughs> he and I were doing a gig together in Columbia, Columbia Missouri. Stop showing off. <laughs> it was the highlight. And we were driving through in his convertible. He told me the story. And I was talking about how, you know, it's fun to indulge yourself on the road a little bit, but it's kind of a hard balance sometimes. And he said to me that Bob Hope one time said that there are comedians who want a top level career and the success in comedy that they've always dreamed of. And there are comedians that want to get laid on the road and are all about the girls and they each got what they wanted. Interesting. And uh, so I think that's true. I remember, you know, I, I created what a lot of people think is one of the best com live comedy brands. Comedy Juice. Yeah, that's right. In the country, Comedy Juice. We do shows around the country. And, and what's odd about Ben, if I could interrupt him yeah. for a second. When you're somebody who produces a live show and you are an artist, there have been times in this strange few decades that we've had where comedy has never been better, where you're looked upon in a way that's not in a positive light, that you can't possibly be a great stand-up comedian and artist if you produce a live show. And so Ben and his partner <laughs> created this thing, Comedy Juice, about 15 years ago, and very, very few people know that he created it, and mm -hmm. he created the brand, and he does it, and it's still a money-making situation. And just recently, I noticed that you just started saying it again because I guess when you get to a certain point, you're hosting and executive producing and doing a special, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I think success in this business, you need to have a certain amount of self-awareness to know whether or not you're succeeding, to know how you're being, how you're resonating with people. You can't exist just in a bubble. I mean, maybe the most pure artist in the world can, and it'll be great. And maybe he'll become huge or maybe he'll die completely alone and unknown and no one will ever know the person existed. I think you have to check in and see if the things you're doing are indeed resonating. And I know 
um, that when I started the brand at first, I needed it. And my face was all over it. And I was hosting comedy juice every week when it started the laugh factory as college night. And then to the improv where it became comedy juice. And I named the brand and Scott Richardson and I created it. What and was the second choice for a name? I don't think there was, one. I'm, I'm good at titles. I just close my eyes. And I'm like comedy juice, be a cool name. And, um, what would you name this show? I named it industry standard. What would you have named it? I would name it, uh, moving the needle. <laughs> With very cats. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Just check it. Um, and, um, and people might think it's a quilting podcast and it would be quite unentertaining for people. And uh, so I created this brand. I was all over it and I really needed that stage time to help build my career. And then I just was hitting a plateau and I knew I could just tell that people in this business, typically when you promote and produce good stand comedy shows, you're all about the production. This business loves to put people in boxes. They don't have the, 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 ability to see people as multi-talented they don't have the ability to to consider that oh my god is it possible someone who's good at business could also be a a good artist and so i could just tell that people were not taking my comedy seriously it's a funny phrase because comedy does need to be taken seriously if you want to get somewhere and so i just went on deep background we started hiring interns and then employees and i stopped working on the company completely i stopped booking the shows stopped telling people I had anything to do with it and just literally disappeared and didn't mention my name with Comedy Juice for about seven years. And um, that's when my career really started to take off and it worked. And like you said, only in the last couple of years have I been comfortable enough and where I am and feel established enough that I now I'm happy to talk about it. But coming from the angle of being somebody who for so many years booked comedians, I've saw the other side of it of what I always wanted and wondered why I wouldn't get booked certain rooms or whatever. And And you really get a sense of what it is that takes that it takes to make it and also the, the pitfalls people have and like you said about partying too much i remember one time a comedian whose name i won't mention gave me a tape and was dying to get on comedy juice and it's funny having to like explain to why they can't get it like one comic one time gave me a tape and his hand kept putting his hand nervously in his pocket throughout the set and i'm like you look nervous you're constantly putting your hand in your pocket but this one comedian who i won't mention gave me his tape and i watched it and it was just not good it was so way too loose for the place he was in his comedy and he was just talking to the crowd without great jokes and being real dirty for no reason. And the next week, he's like, you look at that tape. And I said to him, and I, whenever I can, I try to be very honest with people because no one's benefited by being bullshitted. It's literally, it's another thing that's wrong with society too much is we just talk around shit and we talk behind people's back. And then to their face, we're like, no, no, it's great. I'll, I'll get you on the show. And no one's going to get better from that. Like, even if I'm in an Uber, I was in an Uber a little while ago and the Uber smelled horrible. And I don't want to ruin this guy's career by giving him one star and, and screwing up his average rating so i did the hard thing and not didn't talk behind his back i said to him look i'll give you five stars buddy because i want you to have a good rating but your car smells horrible there's a body odor in here that is really not good you're having customers you can't he said really i have no idea no one ever told me that thank you so much for telling me and his cab i guarantee will never smell bad again so this comedian and i said to him i'm like look i put your tape in and you're just talking there's not enough jokes there's nothing original in your premises i can't book you on the one of the best shows in the country where you're performing alongside dave Chappelle and louis ck and sarah silverman i just can't do it and he literally like like broke down was so touchy he's like thank you man no one's been honest with me like that can i, can I be honest man it's just i just i just love pussy i'm just more focused on pussy i can't help it and that's what my, where my focus is you, you're right and he had so much respect for me he and i were so cool after that Way closer of a vibe after that than you would have been by not being straight with somebody. So always is better to 
tell them like it is. I sometimes worry about that because I have a reputation of being too straight. Oh, you're the king of that. You tear people down in a great honest way that inspires them or they kill themselves. It's, it's one of the two. I've heard so many people tell me, oh, you're managed by Barry Katz? Are you kidding me? He sat me down one time and I had a list of all these things I'd accomplished. And I came back to him with the list of the exact things Barry said I should do the last year. And he sat down and he goes, this is nothing. What is this? You're about accomplishing about as much as a guy in a fucking coma. Some people in comas accomplish more like Terry Schiavo became a national story. And you're sitting here and you've got 25 Twitter followers. That and, that and a nickel will buy you a nickel crumb of a piece of chicken that fell off of somebody's chicken. And they're confused by the analogy, but they kind of get the general idea they got to work harder. Well, I remember I did the same thing with you. You brought me all your yeah. tapes from the National Lampoon Show. Yeah. And I obliged you. And at late one night, I looked at all of them. Yeah. And I sat you down and I basically... It was the greatest moment. You gave us a tour of New Wave where you used to work, the company that you helped start. And we gave us a tour of this whole place. And I was being treated like a king. I'm like, oh my God, Barry's showing us the tour. And you showed us a copy of Dane Cook's pilot and asked for my thoughts on it. And Scott Richardson and I um, then gave you this tape. And we're like, and you're like, what can I do for you? What do you and you, and you got a thing on your desk that said, never give up. And you're like, Ben, the thing I love about you is you never give up. I still have that on my desk. I bet you do. And... Um, and you said, look, what, what I need to do, I'm like, just look at these, this one hour of footage. Maybe that's too much to give somebody. <laughs> Maybe we should have given you five minutes. But I really wanted you to see like the whole sense of the talk show and different highlights we've done over the three seasons at Lampoon. And you said, like, look, you're not my client, so I probably shouldn't even say this, but um, I'm going to watch this hour. And if there's anything at all that I like in here, I'm going to help you sell it. And we never heard from you again for many years. <laughs> So, you know, you have to also realize, too, you can't let, as much as that was kind of annoying, you can't let your ego sour yourself to people who are going to keep it straight with you. Because I always know where I stand with you, too. I know if you say something's good, that is good. So a lot of people would say, fuck that guy. I'm never going to talk to him again. Many not, do. Many do. <laughs> and I'm not going to work with him again. And I'm the opposite. I I thought, okay, that he clearly didn't want to sell this thing or he forgot about it. But down the road. You could never let me forget about anything. <laughs> I came back into your good graces and I think you finally saw the light and realized had your come to Jesus moment and realized how great I am and you had to work with yet you need a piece of this business. When you're a manager you work with a lot of people sometimes. There's people who come to you that already are making good money and they want you to service what they're doing and they want you to help them with things in the future and then there's artists you work with and they're not really making that much money and you can add up all the hours you put in and you might end up adding up to 76 cents an hour that you for a long time I was one of those for a long time but I never I think part of my philosophy and management has always been don't worry about the money the money will come if I keep doing what I always do the money will come just worry about the artist being great and doing great work and if the artist you can get them to a point where they're doing great work and people believe in them then everything will come true and all the dreams will happen and i think for you one of the things i want to share with the audience i say this sometimes in this podcast ad nauseum that'd be a great name for the podcast ad nauseum with barry Katz. ad nauseum that's right that's a good one <laughs> The biggest job that a manager has or any artist is turning no's into yeses. It's what it is all the time. And I can't remember a time where 
there was any artist I worked with that had a hundred percent of the people in town saying yes to what they wanted to do. Your hope is that there's at least one that says yes. And then you can have others that maybe want to say yes because they said yes. But even with Chappelle, there were many people who said no to what he wanted to do. But there were also many that said yes. And he was a genius. Louis C.K., when he pitched the Louis show, do you think every network said yes? Let's do the Louis show. No, only one said yes. And first it was HBO and he had that failed sitcom yeah. on HBO and then had to restructure it and luckily got that deal at FX. And so that's the way it is. So with Ben's special, to me, that's a dream come true. The dream come true for me or for any artist or anybody listening shouldn't be when things come easy. The dream come true should be when things are really hard and then they finally happen and then you're on the cusp of millions of people seeing what you do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really excited for you about that. Me too. I'm really excited. I think overall it, it just wasn't the easiest for us to get the special sold. And I think part of it is because of all the things that I do. Like we said earlier, people don't always see you in the light that you want to be seen. And it, and it's hard for them to. So a lot of people don't even know that I do stand up. And that's my biggest passion. And that's the my soul is stand up comedy. And I'll do it till I die. And I think that people, because I do a lot of, even within my own act, I don't have one particular type of joke I do. I don't have one voice I go to all the time. I don't have one style in my act. I do a little bit of everything in my act. I do a lot of improv, do a lot of crowd work. I remember years ago, I couldn't even get on Comics Unleashed, which is not a very hard show to get on because they said, we love Ben. He's really funny with his crowd work, but does he have material? And I had two and a half hours of material at the time. That was great stuff. But I wasn't presenting in this cleanly packaged way that the industry could just easily see it and say, oh, of course, these jokes are his great killer jokes are going to work well this way. I like to be a lot looser. I like to be a lot freer. And that's one of the things where we butt heads a lot in your career is the fact that my philosophy in stand up is not always popular, but I love watching people do crowd work. I started my career with Paula Poundstone, mm-hmm, one, of, one the of the greatest crowd work people you will ever see in your entire life. And I don't think there's anyone better. But also, Paula does a ton of regular material. And yes, she's done great HBO specials where she's worked the crowd, and she's also done great specials where she's done all material. But in this time of stand-up, the way it is and how competitive it is, I do not believe that crowd work is going to get you where you want to go. The only way I see it getting a comedian where they want to go is if that's all they do and they're known as, hey, like an old comic who was so great, he worked at The Tonight Show for so many years, one of the nicest guys, Jimmy Jimmy Brogan, Brogan, all crowd work all the time. Mm -hmm. Why don't you search how many late night sets and how many hour specials Jimmy Brogan has? You won't find them. And then so the fact with you, with the special, one of the things I was really, really conscious of and I was really wanted you to present to people, you can always work a crowd when you're doing a live show. You can always do it. It'll be unexpected. It'll be fun. 
But for your hour special, what you're going to be judged on is the content. And everybody out there, no matter what you do in this world, you're judged on by the work that you create, whether you create it for other people or you create it for yourself. And so crowd work is an improvisational thing. It could be argued, hey, well, improv, I'm creating. I'm doing something. Think to yourselves, all the listeners out there, take a 100% pie of all the comedy content, the live comedy content that you've ever seen on television, and tell me what percent of it is improv. It's 1% of 1% of 1%. And if you take away whose line is it anyway, <laughs> it's less of a percent of that. The content and the words and the stories are paramount. And if you can create great stories in your stand-up that move people and inspire people, you're going to get a lot farther than if you say, hey, sir, what do you do for a living? You're, you're, <laughs> you're probably still right about that, but it's probably still something that we butt heads on because, A, I made sure that, that the special does have some crowd work in it, and I'm very proud of that part of it even more than a lot of the bits. And, you know, like I said, like I do all these different things in my act. I do, you know, some political, not much in my stand-up, but I do observational. I do some dirty stuff. I do some silly stuff, some surreal stuff, and some crowd work. And I just don't want in the most free of all art forms to have to be that calculated with the way I present it. I just have to kind of do what I do. And I made peace years ago now with the fact that I just have found my style and my style is that mixture. And, you know, as much as I hear what you're saying, you're not necessarily creating in when you're doing crowd work stuff that lasts forever in, in the lexicon doesn't burn into the cultural zeitgeist. But at the same time, you also are giving people a rare, unique once in a lifetime experience. And the best, you know, comment I get when people leave my live shows is like, I've never seen a comedian do that. I've never seen a comedian be that quick off the cuff and that and that in the moment and literally creating and I, I i grant you more than anything there's nothing worse than shitty crowd work there's nothing worse than boring generic crowd work but i've always prided myself on when i do it it's the ultimate high wire act and i try to find brand new creative new ways to do it and to talk to people and engage people not on the obvious but to get to something different you haven't seen before and that's just something that i do so granted it that is a big reason why it took me 16 years of stand-up to get a special is that I wasn't known for my material. I didn't have as many classic bits that got out there that you saw on The Tonight Show or that you saw on Letterman. You know, I missed that chance to get on Letterman and I always wanted because I wasn't, I guess, honed to that degree um, with presented TV clean, good stuff. I've got oodles of material, but it's just delivered in a bit of a looser style. And, um, but it does lead to other kind of work. It's led to all my other work. It led to the Real Wedding Crashers and improv hidden camera show. It led to all the hosting work I've gotten. It's led to Idiot Test, where in half of every single episode, while you're, it's one of the rare shows on TV where you think and it really challenges your brain with these brain puzzles. And then the other half of each episode is an improvised comedy. I mean, I literally, the, the network lets me go crazy. And each episode, I've had a, now soon 145 half hours air where it's a showcase for my improv, and that's what I've honed in my stand-up. So I'm fully aware that there's been a trade-off to the trajectory of my stand-up based on that, and it made it a much more uphill climb for us to get that special sold and get that special to be seen by everybody. But uh, now that we have it, and the, and the special's 95% material, 
I'm hoping this is finally the moment that people realize, oh shit, he's got really great material and hopefully I'll become, you know, a lot more people's favorite stand-up in addition to hopefully they already like the things I do in other areas. I think they will. Well, all right, let's go way, way back because I want to talk about your life because this is going to be very inspirational for people because normally when you're seeing people on television or you're watching them, you have no understanding of the trials and tribulations and the defeats along the way and the obstacles that they go through. So I want you to tell our audience, go way, way back, how you grew up, what area you grew up in, the socio-dynamic thing, your family, and your first inspiration for doing comedy and continue into the obstacles that you went through as a child to get where you want to go. Well, I was uh, I was born in... in Chugiak, Alaska. I, w- I had no arms, no legs. I was a stump boy. I was referred to as stump boy by most people that I met. And they would, I, would, I, wouldn't even, I couldn't even go to school. I had to be rolled to school. <laughs> I would, <laughs> um, no, I was born in L.A. I'm, I'm one of the few uh, L.A. natives in this, in this entertainment business that's from here and stayed here. And um, I moved. My parents got a house in Beverly Hills when I was five years old because they wanted us to go to good, the best public schools they could find and didn't have the money for private schools. And at the time, you could get in to what I call South Central Beverly Hills for really cheap. You could get a house for like a totally normal amount of money somehow. There was this downtime in the, in the real estate market. And so literally, both geographically and economically, I lived in a just very lower middle class part of Beverly Hills. You know, my parents made, my dad made um, for, I think, a lot of my life as a kid, between like thirty and fifty thousand dollars a year only. Yet I'm living in the richest city in the world, and I'm going to high school with Rod Stewart's kid. And I go down, and you see snakeskin cowboy boots sticking out the window of some SUV, and it's Rod Stewart there to pick up his kid, and Rachel Hunter in the driver's seat, and and uh, it was very interesting to see that dichotomy and to see people who had everything in the world, and to see all the rich Persian dudes that literally had so much money. A lot of people don't understand that after the revolution, I think in 73 or 74, an enormous influx of Persians came to Beverly Hills. So Beverly Hills is probably, could be argued, 33% to 50% Persian. Totally. I mean, I feel like I grew up in Iran. I mean, I'm on several terrorist watch lists just because (laughs) of growing up in a beautiful city here in LA. Um, I, uh, and with that joke made with all respect because I have two Persian ex-girlfriends, both Muslim, both the hottest things on earth. I mean, Persian women is nothing better and they're lovely people, but how they, come they're not as hairy as the men? I think a lot of electrolysis, probably a lot of laser hair removal. I don't know. I don't know if that's even true. I don't know. I never saw them even get hair removed, but I don't know. Maybe it's just something God wanted them to be hairless little Persian cats. I don't know. We're digressing. The point is, <laughs> The face you just made was part horror, part huge intrigue. Absolutely. I'm going to swipe right now. You should. Um, 
And uh, so I grew up, you know, went to high school with all these guys. Like, I remember this guy, Mike Hakeem on my high school football team would come out. He's one of our captains. He's brilliant, but like just a ridiculous guy. Ladies, man would come out without his, we'd like late to, for practice. You know, football's like an army and he'd come out late for practice. His pants unbuttoned, his pads under his arms, helmet under his arm. He's like, sorry, I'm late, dudes. I was uh, with all these bitches, man. It's crazy. They were all over my hairy chest, man. They loved it. We were in my Range Rover and I came late. Sorry, coach. <laughs> and he was just so good. You couldn't get too pissed. He had to like run a bit, but, and so I was in that environment. And then starting as a young kid, I always wanted to be an entertainer. I started as an impressionist. You know, I was doing a hundred impressions of celebrities when I was like, by the time I was seven or eight years old and always knew how to make people laugh. And I was fascinated since I was a kid with people with Johnny Carson and with George Carlin. I mean, George Carlin, I discovered a tape. It was his Playing With Your Head album. My brother and I would listen to over and over again. It's filthy, but hilarious, but brilliant album that we memorized when I was a kid. And I just thought his sense of logic was the best I'd ever heard. And just the way he would take a logical point to make some, to make, point out the idiocy in something in the most hilarious of ways. He would just eviscerate a topic through his words and through his ideas and angles and the way he'd write and be musical with his words and really like make uh really like a an orchestral arrangement with the way he would deliver. He wouldn't just tell jokes like most comedians say are just very droll and don't do anything with their voice. And I try and be more creative with my voice as inspired by Carlin because he would do you know, he would sing jokes and he'd be like, Oh and I said, I'll see you then soon. Bullshit Klaus. I mean the thing was like a radio show. And Johnny Carson was the was somebody I was so fascinated by because he was just the most hilarious and charming host I'd ever seen in my life. And the way he would just host this show in this natural, easygoing way that was just so funny and made you feel like you were in on a conversation privately with these huge celebrities. And I was fascinated by both of those guys. And then, of course, as I got into high school, David Letterman became a huge influence. And I knew from age five or six I wanted to be an entertainer and be a comedian. And... I hit this huge roadblock because a very bad speech problem developed in my life. And I was, when did it develop? I mean, it started, I think as early as like three and four years old. I, you so know, you had it from the first time you were speaking. I was speaking at nine months. My, my mom says that I was speaking full paragraphs at nine months. Uh, I think I've always been a bit of a, bit of a talker. <laughs> but then two years later, something happened. Did they know what happened? No, I think maybe like four or five is when it really started to get bad. Um, they don't know. There's different theories as to what happened, but it was beyond a stutter. I had a stutter, but also a disfluency where I couldn't even make sound come out of my vocal cords for on and off different points in my life throughout a lot of my life. There's different theories. Some people think, think I wasn't tending to one hand or the other. So teachers suggested I become left-handed. And to this day I am left-handed and I can't write at all well with my left hand. I have the worst handwriting. People with something, maybe like my wires got crossed to some degree. I don't know. Um, so no doctor could figure out what happened, why yeah. it happened then, and is there an official name to the condition? Disfluency was really what it was. It's called disfluency. Right, and a stutter. I know this is really odd me asking this because you started off as a kid, you probably doing hundreds of impressions for your family. Mm -hmm. Would you mind sharing with our audience what you sounded like when this was happening to you? Sure, I mean, it was. it's unpleasant to hear really, but, but if you can bear through it, um, it would be... So let's say I was talking to you. You're approaching me in the hallway at school and say hi to me as, as you're walking by. Hey, Ben, what's happening? Hi, Barry. Like that. 
And that was good if I was able to even get out the Hiberia after 10 seconds. Now, I noticed that you touched your right eye yeah. when you did that. Now, this is something that I've heard about. Why don't you explain to the audience what that's about, what happens when you touch your eye and then you talk? Um, I guess a lot of people with speech problems, you develop or any issues like this, you develop little like ticks or little ways to kind of clear it or just things that automatically happen. I don't know. But I developed this way when I solved the speech problem well into college and I started doing my own TV show and had my own late night talk show that was p patterned after Letterman and Carson. And on air, I would have speech problem and I would hit blocks. And I just developed this way, like I would just touch my eye and for some whatever reason, touching the corner of my right eye would like, I don't know, neurologically it would do something that would get rid of that block so no doctor told you to do that no 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 it just came out of nowhere okay so you're young you have this condition obviously not a very popular kid there's not many popular kids who have speech conditions right it's very difficult yeah, well, socially bullied a ton horrible beaten up a little bit but then you go on into high school and you still have this vision of doing a talk show and that kind of thing in your own way but you're still like somebody would call on you in class in high school, like a teacher would call on you in class and that same thing would happen to oh, you. Oh yeah. I mean, it was just the most, I think it's probably a great part of why I have this like ridiculously steely confidence on stage. Now nothing can phase me on stage. You know, I just recently did Joe Coy's podcast and Josh Wolf was on there too. And they both said like something about you. We noticed early. It's like we were, I was always like stunned. Where did this confidence come from on stage? You had this insane level of confidence in your jokes. And it's because I went through, you know, 22 years essentially of being called on to speak getting the floor getting the stage and literally not being able to talk and people laughing hard and being so awkward and the most incredible like overwhelming overcoming like sense of nervousness and embarrassment would come but you still have to be there you, you can't run out of the room when you're sitting in class you and so you had to i had to learn to endure just this enormous onslaught of pressure and energy and awkwardness and mockery really coming at you and it just makes you stronger because you walk out of that class and you're still alive and you can still walk and you can still no one hates you because of it it's just you, it was an embarrassing moment especially as you get older people become a little bit less petty and ju let, judge you less for things like that and so i started realizing wow if i can get through that someone not laughing at a joke and then i can make fun of myself or go on to the next joke and get a laugh in a second i do not care in the least and it made me you know, have, I think, a really huge success rate in my stand-ups, even starting early on. I didn't bomb for nearly as long as most comedians did. Maybe for like a month or two, I bombed when I started doing open mics and then figured it out and was crushing my sets because I just had gotten past so much worse. Well, what's fascinating is when you go, let's say, to a 7-Eleven and you have your chips and your Snapple and whatever, a sandwich, and you bring it to the counter... You don't have to talk. You don't have to engage. Here's my stuff, whatever. But it's interesting how this was a foundation for later things because in class, it's almost improvisational in the sense where when you're in class, you don't know if the teacher is going to call on you. You might not raise right. your hand, then right. you might be called on. Oh, yeah. They might walk over to you. And so you're in a situation where it's like a shotgun at you and you have to speak. What was the percentage of times where this thing engulfed you? And what was the percentage where it just didn't happen? I mean, there's a huge percentage that it engulfed me and became a problem to the point where even towards the last couple of years of high school and even the first few years of college, I had to go up to my teachers eventually and say, 
very beginning of the quarter, please never call on me. I have a bad speech problem, and it's just too embarrassing and too hard to handle. And if I ever raise my hand, it means I'm feeling relaxed in that particular moment. And call on me then if you want, because I'll have I think I'll be able to probably speak. But they would still call on you, and some teachers would say, "I'm, I'm sorry, this participation is part of the class." Or other teachers, I wouldn't have the confidence to say that too, and they would call on me anyways. And and it was a huge amount, but yet somehow still I was like making people laugh, and I was still the class comedian. Because it would come and go. It was very dependent. I would go to speech therapists. They would teach you physical tricks to get rid of these blocks. What were the tricks? It was stuff like put an H sound in front of harder sounds like M's or B's or V's that are harder to make because H's open your vocal cords. So instead of saying, Mom, I'm very hungry, you say, Mom, I'm very hungry. And I never tried it even once. I'm like, that sounds ridiculous. I'm going to sound, I'd rather not speak. And so I just didn't do it. And I knew that for me, the problem was that I was too concerned with being perfect and presenting well. And it was much more shallow. I was concerned about coming off well instead of focusing on the content of what I was saying. Instead of caring about being the fact that I was a messenger for an idea, for a thought, I was all about the presentation. Does it sound good? Are they judging? How's it coming off? It was far too ego-based. You know how sometimes there'll be a child that wets their bed? And they might be nine, they might be 10, they might be 12. And with confidence, whether there's parents out there or aunts and uncles, you can say to the child, this is going to end. You're not going to be wetting the bed when you're 18. Right. It's just going to go away. One day it's going to go away. The speech therapist, did they say to you, Ben, I know this is tough now, but you're going to laugh about this because it's going to go no. away. Hell no, because they don't know because there's plenty of adults that, that stutter all the way through their lives. So they couldn't give me that guarantee. And But I knew I'd figure it out. I never was afraid I wouldn't figure it out. I mean, there were times where I was like very frustrated. And of course, there were sad times as a child where I was like, God, I have all this like humor in me and things I want to say to entertain people and I can't get it out. And I certainly hope I get past this one day. But more than anything, I knew I would. I just knew it was this enormous puzzle. Like life gave me this incredible riddle to figure out and I had to find out how to get rid of this block and and um get to where I would and like I said a lot of it was based on confidence and vibe like in, I remember in eighth grade it was very weird because I was in and it was times when I felt uh it depended it was depending if in the group I felt confident or not I was in an honors English class in eighth grade and also like a pretty remedial dumb dumb science class and in the science class I had to give a three-page presentation one day and spoke beautifully. I was like Obama up there. I was literally like flowing through it. And then the very next day, I had to give a presentation in the honors English class where I felt maybe intellectually, I hope these these, these kids think I'm as smart as they do. And I, I didn't know if I belonged there. And I had to be, give a presentation as Willie Mays in a jersey. And I couldn't speak. And I literally stumbled through in the most embarrassing, awkward way. And having to make up statistics of how many home runs he hit to a number I could say and all of these things. And they're laughing at me and it's my cards are getting, I'm sweating and the cards are getting fumbled and, and, and it just was dependent on that. But it's funny that you say it's improvisational in a way because it very much was. And that's also why I think I'll never be able to give up doing crowd work and improvising as a huge part of my career is that I'm just, I've become really good at it. And I think, um, you know, they say that it takes the 10,000 hours of work to really become great at what you do and become one of the best at what you do. And I have a theory, I don't know if it's true, maybe some speech pathologist or neurologist out there can comment um, if they hear this podcast, but my theory is that um, 
for so much of my life. I gave far more than that 10,000 hours in hitting roadblocks in my neural pathways where I couldn't say something. And then as I learned to get around it and get out of it and still be able to speak, I had to, with a split second notice, think of a completely different way with different words that I could say to get the same message across. And so I think I put in like 20,000 or more hours of building different neural connections and speeding up the way my brain would function so that now I think I'm, you know, one of the best at improv and crowd work because I just think of funny things to say much faster than most people do. And I'd like to at least attribute it to that. Maybe that was part of why it was, it was the training of the speech problem for so long. So one of the biggest things that can be also psychologically demoralizing to a kid in high school is friends and how cruel kids can be in school and also meeting girls who you engage and who like you and will go out with you and do things with you. Did you find that you had a hard time having any friends or having any girlfriends where you could have relationships with even at that young age? And when was the first time a girl actually cut through all the crap and didn't worry about what was wrong or what the speech problem was and just liked you for you? How old were you? Uh, 33. Um, (laughs) No, that's my biography. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, it did take a while. I mean, I, I was lucky enough that I never was at a place where I didn't have any friends, but I didn't have a huge group of close friends in most of elementary school. I didn't have like a lot of best friends. I did develop one best friend that I had, you know, in the later years of elementary school, who was this brilliant kid, Ayal, who ended up, you know, getting a 1600 on his SATs and going to Harvard. And, and he um, was also, I guess, weird in that way. And we kind of connected, but um, I definitely didn't have the ability to talk to girls or have anything in a romantic nature with girls for a very, very long time. I would get very nervous. The first girl asked out, rejected me, and we ended up being friends, but she rejected me in like the sweetest but worst way I ever asked her out. And 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 uh, I said, I had mustered the energy to call her and was kind of stumbling through it. And I said, Iris, I wonder if you would go out, uh, if you wanted to go out with me this weekend. And she goes, I can't, I can't go out this weekend. I'm my, my cousin's coming to town. I go, okay, how about next weekend? She goes, my best friend and I are going to this thing. I'm like, well, how about the weekend after that? And she goes, uh, then, then, uh, summer, summer school starts. <laughs> so she literally <laughs> just pushed me back to an enormous number of weekends where I kind of got the message. You also shouldn't ask somebody seven times in a row to go out with you. But, um, that's a good lesson for all of you listening out there. I always think to myself, the easiest way to, cut through the bullshit detector is just say tell me a day and a time when you can go out do you ask and i will confirm that do you ask girls out the same way you book your podcast and book schedules <laughs> give that, me three times when you're available and i'll choose one that's why i'm not successful at women because i ask them out like i'm booking the podcast and then you go on your first date and you say Listen, you think you look good. You don't look great. Oh, here's the list of things you need to go back. I'm going to meet you in one year. And if you don't put these things together, honestly, you're wasting your life. And then the girl is not into it. Um, Maybe you could give me some lessons on I, that. Then I could because I have figured out girls. I mean, sort of. I haven't exactly found the love of my life, so I don't say that I'm an expert. But when you say that you figured out women, tell our audience if you were writing a book on women. Yeah. Maybe three things that they wouldn't know that you could impart on them in the highlight chapter of your book to help them have better 
success with the ladies? Well, humor, I think, is incredibly important. And I think right, you, that's one. That's one. Two is. <laughs> I'm talking about myself. Oh, for I, got, you? I got something sure. going for me. Well, I can okay. give you a bunch of tips off air, but um, just the tips. But um, <laughs> another big part of it is just you have to seem like real you have to seem genuine you just have to connect somebody's real look at them in the eye don't come up with some cheesy line don't try to pick them up just go up to somebody and and connect look them in the eye and say something genuine say something like oh i really like this bracelet or say to them this is a weird night isn't it just start a conversation don't you have to get right past because it's awkward for them too guys always think oh they're these perfectly stoic characters and we need to come up and bow to the altar it's not that way women deserve that because they're amazing and have incredible things to be to be to be you know uh respected in that way but they're also fragile people that want to meet somebody and are out at that bar because they're single and they want to meet somebody and so you go up there and get them pat get past that awkwardness up front by just saying something real something about the moment and the most important of all of them is just confidence and that's what i learned through that speech problem is women are attracted to confidence you can't get a you know i think evolutionarily we're designed for men to be the protectors and the and the alpha and in the situation and women want somebody who they know they can feel safe with and you can't you can't get get a girl if you're not exuding that so you have to come up and don't force it but go up, just have the confidence like no go up and say hey how are you so in this day and age of electronic dating oh and the presumptive close is huge one more huge tip we're talking about this best way to get a girl's number in the world is the presumptive close very vulnerable and scary and i used to mess up so many times saying like could i get your number you think i could get your number well now that's awkward and you're saying it in an unconfident way i pull my phone out and i say what's your number let's hang out sometime just literally or even i'm sorry i say i pull my phone i'm like give me your number let's hang out sometime so you don't even give them an option. It's like, give me your number. Oh, sure. Like, it's not awkward. It's just like a natural next step. I have them type out their number. And that way, when it has four digits, I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> 911 <laughs> exclamation point. Max, by the way, our producer's parents are here, and I'm so happy that they're here. It's so exciting to see people who are my age here who are actually alive and actually awake. Max's dad's wearing sunglasses. You don't know that he's awake. I thought he would slip into coma a long time ago. So just one more thing about this. So on the world of social electronic dating, Mm. where all the things that you mention are almost impossible to convey digitally when you're writing an answer back after the woman just says hi. Yeah. That's what they do. They just say hi. They won't say it. You just hi. And they just leave it open for you to say something. I don't have good tips here. I'm horrible at, at online dating. I'd like app dating. I don't do well at it. I get a lot of matches, thankfully. And then I just, I almost never meet people off of it. I just, I'm not good. You do, you do you, exactly why you said you can't convey any of those things. And I come off a little, I think, neurotic and overthinking in the message. But I do know in texting girls, a big key, it's a, it's a, it's a stand-up bit of mine is your, your text can't have more than one thought. You need to have simple Girls like very chill communication, and so it should be like fun time or good hang. Girls love that. That makes them very excited. A text should not say, really fun time hanging with you. When can we hang out again? I think we should do it soon. Whoa, you just went three different places. She feels like you're erratic, you're needy. It's no good. That's the digital version of John Favreau and Swingers. That's exactly right. And then my other biggest tip is like when all else fails, just send them a dick pic. 
That's a key move. Well, that would be another thing that would fail for me. <laughs> Jews and dick pics do not go together. <laughs> I'm afraid. But it, it depends. We're on both ends of the spectrum. Well, I know you're blessed. <laughs> but I'm not blessed. But yeah, so I didn't really like get a girlfriend until my senior year of, of high school. She was a freshman. But she said, fuck it. I don't care that you're stuttering. I don't care that this stuff's happening. I don't care what people say. I don't care that people are making fun of you. I'm here for you. Well, but that was the weird thing. In high school, I didn't get made fun of very much. And in college, not at all. I still had the speech problem. But that was mostly in high in elementary school that happened. I got to a point where I, I, I wasn't like some, some sad case and totally unpopular. Like I was elected senior class vice president in high school despite my speech problem. I, I was on the football team. I was horrible. I never played. But I created the pep rallies and would host the pep rallies even though I had the speech problem. And it would come and go. So I was still like a really fun presence and had developed a lot of confidence by the time I was in high school. And the speech problem, I think, was not a very defining thing. In my head, it was the world. and It was the most enormous thing. But I was still a very fun, pretty well-liked guy, even though in my head I was incredibly awkward with girls. And, but, you know, you, you, you find a, a innocent freshman girl doesn't know any better, and it makes it a lot easier. Tell us how you lost your virginity, the circumstances behind oh, it. Oh, Jesus. Do you ask these questions to the heads of HBO? <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've asked this question. I bet. Um, it's, a, it's a quite elaborate, long story that I'll try to boil down Our for audience you. has time. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Well, uh, it's a very elaborate story. But the, the, the first time I technically asked my I'm sorry, Max's parents are going to have to leave the room. No, I'm <laughs> they, I think Max is here. They've, they're familiar with sex. <laughs> They've done it at least once. And... Um, she said it once. She just pulled up one finger. Um, and uh, it was the time I really lost it, you know, two years later when I was like 22 or 23 years old. You lost your virginity time, twice. Twice. I did. Yeah, I did. Because the first time was you, you, you technically have to count it, I guess. But it was not a six. It was this girl that I was in love with throughout all of college. And um, I, I was just always romantic comedy in the brain before it became a little bit more jaded. And I... Uh, just from met her day one of welcome week of freshman year and just well, that's the girl I wanted and she was hadn't wanted nothing to do with me romantically. We became best friends. She did not want to be with me forever. And then eventually I wore her down and we started hooking up and like tried sort of dating. But she called me one day when it was about to be spring break and said, I wanna I wanna do it with you. I wanna lose my virginity with you. And I was like, Oh my God, that's great. And I proceeded to make the largest series of errors in a row to set my psyche up for complete failure it's about to be spring break so what do i do any confident college man's about to get late what does he do you call your mom you call your mom and you say mom jill and i are gonna do it it's so exciting um i need to get a hotel room this is like pre the internet being like really like fluid and everybody being able to google on their phones we didn't have cell phones really and so uh mom's like benny i'm so proud of you I will look up hotel rooms for you. I'll find hotel rooms. She calls me back. Here's a list of 12 hotel rooms on the beach in Santa Monica. You can meet her there. She books the room for me. I have to get confirmation numbers from my mom. I go down and then this girl, Jill, drives all the way from her house in the valley to my parents' house in South Central Beverly Hills, parks at there. They know what's happening. Then we even said hi to my parents. Then get in my car, drive to the beach. I have a boom box with me with 25 CDs for every possible mood, a cooler with snacks. I've got a, I think I have whipped cream. I have fruit. I ordered more <laughs> fruit from room service. We get there and put on music, and the vibe just could not be worse. 
ended up writing a pilot about that. This was the the uh, Glebe Show pilot that we partnered with Lord Michaels and sold to Fox many years Why ago. Why do you think the vibe couldn't be worse? Because it was just far too intense. Sex needs to be much more natural and unplanned and spontaneous and not literally like planning for a live Glebe Show. Like I was like running cables down the side of the hotel <laughs> to make sure we had the right the right reception for my radio station. I mean, it was just so much tension and she was so nervous. I was so nervous and it was just the least sexy vibe possible. And she lies down the bed and she's like trembling and I'm nervous. I don't not particularly turned on by someone trembling. It's like, seems frightening. And, and I just could not really get an erection. It was just horrendous. And so then I excuse myself, go around the corner to the mirror and in front of the makeup table, but she can still hear me. It's not in a separate bathroom or anything. And I'm literally in front of the mirror being like, come on, buddy, you need this. <laughs> this is a big moment for you right now. You can do this. And that didn't help. And I'm sitting there like berating and beating myself quite literally and trying to make it happen. And then I go back and we try again. It doesn't work. We rent a porn on TV and it's some horrible. One. I don't like this one. So I have to cancel it and get another one. And, and she and we end up giving up on the so we tried but like so technically there was a bit of a of a insertion of some sort i suppose and it failed and then uh not in perhaps the coolest move of supporting the person that just had this experience with you and was about to share a beautiful thing and paid for a oceanfront hotel room she goes i want to go do you mind driving me back to my car so i have to drive from the beach at three in the morning back to her car in front of my parents' house. She drives home. I have to go in the house and get stuff. I go in the house. My parents wake up. Benny, how did it go? My dad's like, who is it? Did it go well? Did, you get, did, 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 did it happen? You do the deed? You do the deed? I'm like, uh, guys, I don't want to talk about it now. It's three in the morning. Go back. to It didn't go great. We'll talk about it later. Didn't go great. But I'm going to go back and enjoy the hotel. I paid for a beachfront hotel. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to Good for you, Benny. I'm so proud of you. I'm just, and I leave and I go back to the hotel and had a lovely night the rest of the time. Went in the hot tub the next morning. And I remember the next morning in the hot tub, uh, the jets being really weak and not being. And I, me- I remember the, the, the distinct irony of those jets being not as penetrating as I'd hoped that they would be. But that was my first time. And the next time you saw that woman, what happened? Well, then we went back to school for the last quarter of our senior year, I was 21, and there was this guy that she had a crush on, and she comes up to me at some Greek event, some awards banquet or something, literally not a month or a month and a half later, and says, Ben, um, I did it. I finally did it. I lost my virginity uh, to this guy. And that she that became her boyfriend, and they got married, and they have three kids. So there's that. Talk about sliding doors and different paths your life can take. So that guy should basically send your penis a fruit basket. He really should. <laughs> he really should. And whipped cream in a boombox. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best 
water you've ever had, and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. I guarantee you're in good hands under my administration if I'm so honored to be elected as president. And I guarantee you that either way that it works out, I will fight for you the whole way and at least help change the conversation to something that represents your needs and your struggles much more than career politicians can do. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.